KYW Original Podcasts. I was going through grief from a breakup and from so many transitions in life hitting me at the same time that I was just overwhelmed. We've all been to this place of, of hopelessness that made us want to die. And then we came back. I'm Terry Gregg. Suicide claims the lives of tens of thousands of Americans every year. So for National Suicide Prevention Month, we want you to know we are listening. And on this very special edition of Flashpoint, we are walking you through the flames of mental health crises and suicide. You'll hear from attempt and lost survivors and the pros with tips on the signs. They go unnoticed or unrecognized. They're not taken seriously. Plus... A look at first responders helping their own in crisis. They know that you walk in the shoes that they walk in. Bucks County's effort to save the lives of those who save lives. I'm Listening is an initiative by Intercom Communication, owner of KWW News Radio. Information on suicide prevention is available on our website at imlistening.org. Welcome back to this very special edition of Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is mental health and suicide. According to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. In 2017, more than 47,000 Americans died by suicide and there were 1.4 million attempted suicides. So what is behind this data and what can we do to save ourselves and others. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Dr. Megan Spokus. She's a trained psychologist and professor at LaSalle University who has done research on suicide prevention. We also have Isan Hines. He's a suicide loss survivor and founder of My Brother's Keeper Cares. We have Dr. Zanita Heath. She's a psychotherapist who trains practitioners on suicide prevention in at-risk communities. And finally, on the phone, we have Noelia Rivera Calderon, a fellow at the National Women's Law Center, and she's also a suicide attempt survivor. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Megan, I want to start with you. Let's just put a baseline on this. What are suicidal thoughts and where it comes from? Suicidal thoughts can range from very passive kinds of ideas. I'd be better off if I wasn't here to more active planning around what method would I utilize to take my own life. Oftentimes, it's associated with great despair and hopelessness about one's future. A person may be viewing suicide as a very permanent solution to the difficulties that they're experiencing in their life. And much of the time, people are motivated towards suicide because they are experiencing very intense emotions Mm. that they feel that they are unbearable, they can't be controlled, and they find themselves with no other option. And so, Dr. Zanita, is this a mental illness or is this something else? I think it can be both. The research does show that 90% of the people that commit suicide have had some level of mental illness. Uh, But it could also just be due to life change that they weren't ready to embrace or complications in their life that they weren't prepared for. They didn't have the coping skills. And as a result of not having the coping skills, they use suicide as a resort or as we just heard a means to get 
through whatever they're going through. Anything could trigger these type of thoughts. Yes. It could be trauma. It could be mental illness. It could be life-changing events that they weren't ready for or, as I stated, they didn't have the coping skills to deal with. Noelia, I want to bring you in here because you worked on a report titled We Are Not Invisible, Latina Girls, Mental Health, and Philadelphia Schools. Um, And you guys had some very interesting statistics that came out of that. This report was inspired by some of the really dire statistics that we're seeing around Latina girls, high school girls, middle school girls, and mental health, which is particularly severe in Philadelphia, but is a nationwide problem. So we found that in Philadelphia and nationwide, it's around half of all Latina high school girls uh, report that they are persistently sad or hopeless to the point of being unable to do usual life activities. In Philly and nationwide, one in five have considered suicide. Nationwide, one in 10 attempted suicide within the year of 2017 alone. And in Philadelphia, it's one in seven attempted suicide within that year of 2017. So in this report, we wanted to raise awareness of who is deemed worthy of support and who is not getting the support that they need. And Latina girls right now are not getting the support that they need. Dr. Zanita, Dr. Uh, Megan, when you hear this, your reaction? Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know what to look for and don't know how to treat it when they see it. And so in turn, uh, you have young people that are at risk that are demonstrating symptoms of suicide or depression, but maybe mom and dad doesn't know. Maybe they think it's just a part of being a teenager. So as she stated, she said, listen, a lot of the individuals who have uh, died from suicide or committed suicide, they've done that because people haven't noticed the symptoms. Yeah. I mean, the rates are startling. And um, uh, brings to mind rates in college students as well. So I work on a college campus, and what we've seen over the years are just these staggering rates of of college students thinking about suicide, making suicide attempts, um, college counseling centers being uh, overwhelmed with the demands of the mental health concerns of college students. So we're seeing in that in that realm as well. Yeah, and I want um, Noelia to expand a little bit because you too attempted suicide. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to echo is the not people not knowing what to look for. When I was in high school, I was exhibiting signs of self-harm, putting my head down on my desk regularly, things that I look back and I think, wow, those should have been signs of concern. But when my school counselor noticed my signs of self-harm, he basically just said, stop doing that, but didn't make any attempt to make a referral to a counselor or get me any type of mental health resources. And what we found in the report is that a lot of stereotypes about being Latina might be influencing people's perceptions of what's going on. They are perceived as being inherently crazy, like that's just part of their nature as Latina girls. They're supposed to be crazy, dramatic, fiery, so they are not seen the same way as if it was a white student exhibiting signs of concern. Thank you for that. And Isan, you lost your brother right. to suicide. Yes, uh, my brother Atif, he completed suicide on August 31st, 2007, so about 12 years ago. And there were no signs that we could see. He was handling his life or maintaining life at the same pace he always did. Even the day that he completed suicide, he did his laundry and went to work and just handled his day as usual. Mm-hmm. And there were no signs. He was happy-go-lucky. He seemed to be a proud father. I know he was a proud father, but he seemed to be okay with life. And one day he went home and took his life. And he sent the text message out to the family saying, I'm sorry, and I love you. 
and we all just disregarded. We thought that he was sending something to somebody else and accidentally sent it to us, but we found out that that was his way of saying goodbye ultimately. Hearing these things that people are saying that right now, it does help me to understand that culturally things are handled differently. Things are leaned on in faith, just saying let's pray things through, but not realizing like what signs people are sending. And now that I've had that experience with losing my brother, I'm able to recognize things in me and things within my community and other people so that I can help other people and have the discussion so that people know what to look for. What signs have you seen in yourself? Uh, Grief. Um, I actually contemplated committing suicide October 16th of last year, and I found myself at the end of the day in University of Penn Hospital in their emergency room going through extreme counseling and trying to find out what was going on inside of me. I was going through grief from a breakup and from so many transitions in life hitting me at the same time that I was just overwhelmed. And I now recognize the need to tell somebody else that instead of just going through it silently. So that's what I identified immediately, that I have some things in me that my brother also may have dealt with and some things that may be in my family or within my community that I needed to scream out and tell somebody I'm dealing with this. And since then, I've been in therapy since last October on a weekly basis, and that's helped me out tremendously. Yeah. Plus faith, plus my family and just getting through things and realizing like we all are going through something. Yeah, we all are going through something. And I I want Dr. Megan and Dr. Zanita to jump in here because Isan talked about I mean, he lost his brother and and then contemplated himself. Noelia talked about her own struggles. There are signs. So what are Mm -hmm. they? So if a person seems to be displaying changes in their typical mood, so they're becoming more despondent more depressed, more agitated, anxious. Those are some other mood changes that are noteworthy. Sleep changes, appetite changes, um, voicing concerns about the purpose of their life, voicing thoughts of suicide. Many people do voice those thoughts, but they go unnoticed or unrecognized. They're not taken seriously. I mean, as Noelia talks about, she was displaying very clear indications that she was in need of some assistance And people brushed it off, you know, minimally addressed it. I think many people have concerns about noticing those signs and asking a person, are you okay? Are you having thoughts of killing yourself? It's a very common misconception amongst individuals that if I broach that subject, I'm going to somehow make it worse. So it keeps people silent. But we know over years and years of clinical work and research that the opposite is true. It opens up an avenue for a person to feel supported if a person is saying, I'm concerned about you. Are you having thoughts of suicide? You don't need to be a trained professional to ask that question. Noelia, you talked about all these young girls making these attempts at suicide. Are there specific things that these girls were going through that made them unable to share their feelings and feel like this was the only way out? In Speaking to the girls, a lot of what we found is just the enormous pressure they feel that they are under to be strong for other people and to take care of other people. And that basically the message that it's selfish to have their own needs, their own feelings, that they don't want to be a burden to other people. Uh, Girls are so often socialized to uh, kind of keep their emotions inside or keep their needs to themselves or if they are struggling to just get over it because other people need them, that it's just they get the message that, you know, if I'm struggling, that's my personal problem and I need to get over it. Uh, And that just coupled with a culture of 
stigma within within the Latinx community, but within other communities as well, and I would say broadly in the culture, just that mental health is highly stigmatized. And I think that's something that adds to adds to the difficulty of identifying when someone is struggling because they don't feel comfortable asking for help. I am someone that has always been perceived by others to be very high functioning. Like, I'll go to work, I'll go to school. It might seem like nothing is wrong, I'll get good grades, and then all of a sudden I just crash and burn. I think part of the conversation has to be about what we can do proactively to address this culture of stigma, not just to look for the warning signs, but also make our spaces, our schools, our workplaces have a culture where people are comfortable voicing if they are struggling. I got to bring Isan back in here because you channeled your grief into founding an organization called My Brother's Keeper Cares. Yes. And you bring people together. Tell me about the organization and what you've learned and bringing together these groups. So it started off with just me going around trying to talk to people about my story and about my brother's death. And it wound up becoming concerts. I started doing concerts at Love Park every summer before they did the renovations there. And I would have a week-long concert series with people singing and doing poetry that was all encouraging lyrics and messages. And we would encourage one another from the artists on stage to the people listening. And that branched off to become community conversations at the public library. Every month I have a meeting at the library and people get together and we talk about whatever is going on in our community from prison to fatherhood, motherhood, critical illnesses, like all types of things that wind up causing pressure on us where people do actually choose to leave, to choose to uh, take their lives. So that conversation has been phenomenal. We've been doing that since February Um, My Brother's Keeper, we also connect people with therapists so that people understand how therapy works. And also therapists have access to people in their community who may not know how to get to them. So it's been a network for people to understand what's out there, what's available. And um, also we are now going into Washington High School starting this Mm -hmm. year. And we're going to try to teach the students and the teachers ways to connect and identify different struggles with mental health. Yeah, people are dealing with so much. The statistics for folks under age 24 dying by suicide or attempting suicide, it's been very shocking. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of um, work through that, Dr. Zanita, when we're trying to, to make sure we, we lower that risk? Groups like this uh, that Ishan has, as we can have a safe place for the children to talk. Because if you give them a safe place to talk, you'll begin to see some of the struggles that they have. And so sometimes our young people have a tendency just to normalize it. Oh, there was a shooting, and they become used to it because they've seen it a lot. Whereas if they come in and we have trained professionals that someone mentioned, they can begin to listen to patterns, things that are dysfunctional, things that are unhealthy for these young people. So then they know now, okay, I see this child going through something. I need to help them with some type of clinical intervention. A lot of times our kids are not going to come to us and say, hey, I'm feeling suicidal or, hey, the shooting yesterday hurt me. Because they don't know how to say that, we have to create a safe place for them to have conversations around what they feel. We as the adults or as the mental health professionals or even the teachers have to have certain sentences that we can ask that will probe them to start talking. And I think when we get caught up in the normal day-to-day activities, we have a tendency to miss that. And it gets sweeped under the rug. And then we have the young people experiencing PTSD and it's going unnoticed. Yeah. And I have to bring this up because the statistics show that men are more likely to die by suicide and specifically white men. 
Are, is there a reason or data behind that? Well, right. I, I did want to get to this point about men being more likely, three times more likely yes. to, to die by suicide compared to women. And this has been shown over decades and countless studies show that trend. The girls and the women are more likely to attempt suicide than men, but the men are more likely to die. And one of the biggest reasons we think that occurs is because men are more likely to use violent and lethal methods to kill themselves. They're more likely to use firearms. Our roles kind of tend to promote more aggression and violence in men. Um, And men just tend to have more familiarity to firearms. But if you have access to a firearm, your risk for suicide is three times higher than someone who doesn't have that same access. You don't have to own the gun yourself. You could live in the home or, or know a loved one who has easy access to a gun. So I think, you know, we're talking today about lots of ways that we could try to do better in preventing suicide. And clearly this has to be efforts in many different places, right? We have people asking people about how they're doing. We have to have community efforts that decrease stigma. But I also think there's ways that we can try to limit access to lethal means that Mm -hmm. create some barrier between a person making an impulsive decision and then having the ability to carry that out. Do you feel like it's shifting, Noelia? I mean, do you have this this study come out? We're talking about it. I feel like responses right now are mixed. Mm. I think that, frankly, there are many people, whether they are in the role of a policymaker or a school leader uh, or anyone in positions of power, who are not seeing this as the dire situation that it is. I think that the effect of the stigmatizing of mental health, yes, I think it is getting better. I think that there are a lot of people um, like Isan's organization and a lot of people doing the work to destigmatize and let people know that they can get access to support. And like our organization, trying to let people know that they have rights in school or in the workplace if they need support. Some uh, people in positions of power are starting to hear the message. But I think that we have to keep pushing as a society to show this is extremely important. This is about people's lives. This is about people's educations and their health. And this is uh, an incredibly important issue. This is something that uh, we're trying to raise the alarm, but frankly, has to get much more attention. I know you're in the community, uh, Isan. You're talking to people. Do you feel like the wall of stigma is coming down? Yeah, it's, it's been growing. So when we first started doing the events, it was kind of just me talking to a room of like 13 people and sharing my story. But it kept growing. More and more people were coming. And the conversation started spreading more around the room. So it set up like a round table, And everyone is telling stories about what's going on. We have people in there crying and saying things that they should be saying to a therapist, but the walls for them to be able to even communicate those messages are coming down, and then they're going to counseling after that. So the community conversations are helping, and also helping to discuss things that are happening in our neighborhood where people don't feel like they have a voice to actually express it. Like a child in my neighborhood, 11-year-old, took his life in April, and it impacted the community in a crazy way, and everybody wanted to say things. There was blame. From family, there was blame from school. There there was all these different feelings of blame. But I wanted to bring people together just to discuss the tragedy of his loss and how that's impacting our mental health and how can we be better prepared. So we came up with plans from that instead of just blame. And that I do see something changing with that. It may not be millions of people, 
but there's 50 people coming out to these meetings and their way of thinking and my way of thinking is changing. And Dr. Zanita, how do you make your home a space like that to where everybody can feel like there's no stigma here? We're an open space. How do you even create that space? In the home setting, it's just going back to those things we used to do, having conversations at the dinner table, checking in with our kids, how are you doing, and getting them to talk. A lot of kids use one-word answers, and parents are okay with that. You have to make sure that you're using those open-ended questions to promote dialogue with your children. And then I think that a lot of times we come in, and you wash the dishes, and you cook dinner, and you miss the opportunity as parents to sit down with the kids to have meaningful conversations. And I think it goes to uh, kind of what he was just stating, that we have to ask questions that doesn't make our kids feel guilty or feel wrong about what they're expressing. A lot of times parents will, if a child says something, the parents will say, well, you shouldn't be feeling this way or you shouldn't think about it that way. We have to make sure that if the kids express something, they feel like they're being heard. They feel like they have a voice. And I think when kids don't feel like they have a voice, they begin to look for other means, other options, ask their friends to figure out how can I deal with this. And then we do see now, as as we're talking about today, that suicide rates are increasing. But I also think that we are having better conversations now around it. Uh, even right now, this platform, being able to talk about it, churches are having more open conversations about it. So I think we're doing the work, but it get, it becomes bigger work that the people above us, the policymakers, begin to look at mental health and suicide as a, a real disability, even though they can't see it. Yeah. When is it time to, to seek help or when should you encourage people to go get help? I'm biased. I don't think there's ever a bad time to go seek help. <laughs> you shouldn't wait till you need it, right? You shouldn't wait till you need it. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Therapy <Yeah>. is good. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think we're all in agreement that the mental health stigma is mm-hmm. shifting mm-hmm. and it's we still have a ways to go and it's hard to overcome a number of barriers. Um, one thing that's also coming to mind in this conversation is what's happening with our veterans yeah. Daily, I think it's 20 veterans um, die by suicide. Mm. And only 30 percent of those people who've, who've died by suicide were connected to the VA healthcare system. So they're they're doing a lot of unique partnerships. They're partnering with faith communities, trying to educate through those avenues so that we're not relying on people seeking help. We're trying to go out and get the information into these communities first. We talk about the stigma of mental illness, but there's also this stigma of going to a therapist. You know, if I go get help with, you know, because I'm stressed out or because I'm depressed, then people are going to think fill in the blank. How do we overcome the stigma quickly as we get ready to wrap this up? Teaching people that it's okay to listen. I mean, it's about listening, and I think therapy is the best opportunity for somebody to hear you out. And a lot of the ways we communicate are from us just talking at people and not really giving them an opportunity to listen. Um, and then television shows when we were younger, everything was like shrink and crazy and all that. I think that kind of set the tone that if you go here, there's something wrong with you. But I think I don't I don't think it's a big problem anymore. I yeah. think we still got a long way to go. But mental health is like trendy right now. I mean, there's I'm more concerned about how trendy it is without it being as genuine the type of care people receive because it really is a trendy topic right now. And I don't want people just out of it being popular discussing it and people, I want people who have the means to help to also have a heart behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Anything to add to that, Noelia? Yeah, I'm definitely encouraged by all of the work that is happening just by people on this discussion and by so many people around destigmatizing and showing people that it's, 
completely normal to go to a therapist. I always try to just talk about it as if it's any other medical appointment. I go to a therapist. I go to a psychiatrist. These are normal ways that I'm taking care of my health. Talking about mental health doesn't mean you're crazy. Going to a therapist doesn't mean you're crazy. I think that there is a lot that we can do to continue to normalize discussions. So, And I think also the one last thing I'll say is just that I do think that there is a huge desire to talk about it more. I see that a lot working with the the young people that we worked with for this report. They want to talk about it. They just want to make sure that they are feeling heard and that there is a safe person that they can talk to. So we need to create a space where they feel safe and supported in talking about this. As we wrap this up, let's leave our listeners with some tools on how to prevent suicide and help our loved ones live through those tough times. I want everyone to know that they have rights. If they are struggling with their mental health, they have rights to be supported in school and in the workplace. And mental health is covered by disability law. Students can get accommodations in school if they are struggling with their mental health. That is a right that they have, and it is an obligation of the school or the workplace to support them. Uh, So for more information, uh, they can reach out to us at the National Women's Law Center. Wonderful, Isan. Uh, There's a walk. The American Foundation for Suicide Prevention does a big walk, and they'll be doing that walk October the 6th at the Art Museum. At, I believe it's 8.30 in the morning. I encourage people to come out and support that type of walk that can move forward the discussion and also the awareness for suicide prevention. Wonderful. Dr. Megan? Our therapies that are available to help people reduce their suicide risk are proven therapies to reduce suicidal thinking, reduce risk for repeat suicide attempts. So there are cognitive behavioral treatments available. And then I think the other thing I would add is if you've not yet helped a person get with a mental health professional, to to take that access to means seriously and to think about what you might be able to do in your home to limit access to lethal means. So again, that we can just create some barrier between an impulsive choice and then having easy access to be able to carry it out. And final word, Dr. Zanita. Uh, I want them to know that if they don't know what to do, it's okay to, to take them to the local emergency room. It's okay to take them to their primary care physician. I also think it's important for them to know whether they're insured or underinsured. In this area, the Department of Behavioral Health has tons of resources for families, children and adults, where they can seek services and Medicaid eligible families, where they can get the services that they need. There are ways that they can get the support and resources out there. And you are not alone. Thank you so much to Dr. Megan Spokus, to Dr. Zanita Heath, to Isan Hines, and to Noelia Rivera Calderon for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this very important issue in the news. Everybody know that we are listening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, she tried to take her own life and not only survived, but is thriving. I've learned to be better at coping with it. A prevention advocate and her platform that is helping people live through crisis. You've been listening to a special edition of Flashpoint. I'm Listening is an initiative by Intercom to shine the light on suicide prevention. Resources are available at imlistening.org. Welcome to part two of this very special one-hour edition of Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. This week, we want the world to know we're listening and are shining a light on mental health and suicide for National Suicide Prevention Month. In this half of the show, 
we hear from a woman who is sharing the stories of those who tried to take their life, survived, and are now bravely sharing their struggle. Sometimes life makes people want to die. So we've got to find a way to, to help them want to live. For Empathy Building Blog and its impact, then a Bucks County program that's saving the lives of those who save lives. Enjoy the show. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and in this very special edition of Flashpoint, we are shining the light on mental illness and suicide for National Suicide Prevention Month. One woman, she's made headlines. She is a suicide attempt survivor and is now a beacon of hope for others. Miss Desiree Stage is an artist, public speaker, advocate for suicide prevention, and the mind behind LiveThroughThis.org, a blog that shares portraits and stories of people who tried to take their own life. Welcome to Flashpoint, Desiree. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about your blog. What made you say, I'm going to create this? I have experience with suicidal thoughts. And I lost a friend to suicide for the first time when I was 15 years old. Wow. Um, the mix of the two kind of scared me. And I, I was like, I'm going to I'm going to do something with with suicide research when I grow up, you know, 15 grown up. I've had two suicide attempts. I taught myself photography when I was in my 20s as a, a coping mechanism uh, after my last suicide attempt. It was the thing that that kept me tethered. Um, and I started photographing musicians, and yeah. eventually I was like, I want to do a portrait project, uh, and I didn't know what it was, and then I, I came back to this this idea of suicide, and, you know, let me see what happens here, and I realized that the stories of people like me just weren't there, though so I wanted to bring them out. When we talk about survivors of suicide, a lot of times people automatically go to the family members that lost someone to suicide. But you look at it in a totally different way. Now that uh, suicide attempt survivors are kind of speaking out and becoming a, a more visible community, the language is, is starting to evolve a little. So we've got people who are survivors of suicide loss. So that would be family and friends. Um, and, and then we have suicide, suicide attempt survivors or people with lived experience of suicidal thoughts. Uh, and yeah, those actually those those two communities kind of mix a lot. You know, a lot of attempt survivors and people with lived experience I know are also lost survivors. I am too. Yeah. And so you noticed that there was this gap where the stories of suicide attempt survivors were not being told. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like if they were being told, they were anonymous. And to me, I mean, I'm a I'm chronic oversharer, but, <laughs> but it was hard to see, to, to feel completely alone. You know, to not see any stories like mine. And I knew that that just couldn't be true. So it was hard to find people in the beginning. I was posting ads on Craigslist looking for people like, where are you guys? I know you're here. Why do you think so many people who are survivors of attempts won't share their story or only do it anonymously? Yeah, we're kind of shamed into silence. We're told not to tell our stories not to come out of, of the closet, as it were, because you don't want to be labeled as crazy. That label will go with you for the rest of your life. The other thing is so many people for so long considered it sensitive information. They didn't want to identify people. It's changing, finally. And it's good because I think we need to see that there are other people like us, you know, and that they could be anybody. You interviewed nearly 200 people. We probably have hit that number by now. What did you find? Um... I found that we're all 
very different and we're all the same. You know, we've all been to this place of, of hopelessness that made us want to die. And then we came back. And the interesting thing is the re- response from each of these people is different to, to being alive, you know, to waking up alive. Some people are really angry when they wake up. They're like, oh, I was a failure at life and now I'm a failure at this too. And sometimes it takes a while for them to go, okay, I want to be here. And then, you know, they, they flourish. And we don't necessarily all flourish. I think suicidality comes back over and over for a lot of us. It certainly has for me. But I think with time, in my case, I've learned to be better at coping with it. Mm. So I've had suicidal crises again and again, but now I've got a plan in place. I know to tell my wife that I'm feeling suicidal or I know to tell my friends like I'm having these thoughts, you know, send puppies. And so that way I'm able to keep myself accountable by saying it out loud. And also I'm asking people to check in with me. It's a really helpful tool. What do you think people who haven't been through this miss when they try to help folk or they talk about the issues of a suicide? What do you think folks miss in this? We hear a lot that suicide is selfish or it's the coward's way out. I think that what people miss is that this is legitimate pain. A lot of it, it's not just mental illness. We always, we like to tie suicide and mental illness together. Um, But the CDC actually came out with a report last year that said that's not true. More than half of the people who died by suicide in the U.S. from 1999 to 2016 were dealing with adversity. You know, they were dealing with breakups. They were dealing with financial issues, legal issues, housing issues. So a lot of people miss that, like, this is just life. This is a part of life. And sometimes life makes people want to die. So we've got to find a way to, to help them want to live. Are there triggers for this? Aren't they different for different people? Yeah, they can be. Any kind of event in one's life that could be considered traumatic can trigger those thoughts. And then you start to see people doing things like kind of saying goodbye or maybe giving away their stuff or acting recklessly, drinking more, driving recklessly, being promiscuous, like things that maybe they wouldn't do. And that's when you go, okay, you're you're kind of acting weird. Is Are you okay? Are you thinking about suicide? Asking that question directly is really helpful. And when I looked at your blog, one of the things you mentioned uh, when we started this conversation was that everybody was so different. What surprised you most? I'm rarely surprised anymore. I think that we're we're given this story of hope, the air quote hope that, that we're given is someone had a, an event in their life that made them want to die. They attempted, they got treatment, they got better, and they were better forever. And what the project has taught me is that that's not true and that's not fair to tell people because if they're not better forever, if they become suicidal again, then they think they're failures again and they think it's hopeless again. It's like you can keep living like it's okay. This happens to most of us. So a question that I ask everyone who I interview is, is suicide still an option for you? Mm. And the answer that I get almost unilaterally is, yes, it's an option, but I don't want it to be. So to me, that means this idea of I got better forever is is just not true. It happens over and over again, and we find ways to to get through it. Most of us, we have had losses in the live through this community. If you're at your worst, what could somebody say to you? Or could they say anything? Oh, I think that depends on the person. But for me, to, to be invalidated, to be told like, oh, there are people who have it worse than you, or, you know, oh, suck it up. Those things are really kind of painful. And a lot of people will say that. All you have to say is like, God, that sounds like it must suck. 
You know, what can I do? That kind of response is really helpful to people. Just validating the feeling, even if you don't necessarily agree with it or understand it, that's someone else's experience and they're saying that it sucks. So like, yeah, that, that, that must be really, really awful. And, and that makes people feel better. Just knowing that they're validated, feeling like someone's listening is really helpful. Yeah, because I noticed a lot of people and some of the people in your blog, they specifically did not immediately seek any type of help. And so those listening ears, how important are those people? Those people are so incredibly important. Just having a friend or a family member who can support you. I mean, after my last suicide attempt, it was my best friend who saved me. It wasn't the people at the hospital that I was taken to. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a therapist because I didn't have access to insurance. So I didn't have a therapist at the time. Um, And that's the reality for a lot of people. And then you have other people who have maybe had these feelings before and they're afraid of being locked up. And that's a that's a big reality. People think that you should call 911 on someone who's suicidal and that should not always be the case. That should only be the case when, you know, maybe they have a gun in their hand. Then you've got this extra issue of if someone calls 911 on you and you're a person of color or you're queer, that could be really dangerous for you. So there are a lot of things that people don't, think about when they're faced with this crisis of a suicidal person. So really, the people around you are kind of, they should be the front lines of defense. All they have to say is, how can I help you? And then that opens up a conversation and it's like, okay, do you need a therapist? Can we find you one? Do you have access? Or is there something else we can do? Is there a community of support we can pull together for you? Your advice to people, because you've been on both sides. You've had friends going through this. You lost your friend. Did you have any idea? I did have an idea. Yeah, I knew. You did? I did. I knew. Not with the first friend. He was certainly a surprise, but I didn't know anything about suicide then, Mm -hmm. you know, other than that I was having these scary thoughts and that he seemed popular and he had a girlfriend and he seemed happy and like he was angry at his parents a lot, but I I never could have known that that... um, would translate into him dying. So in that case, I didn't know. But later I did know um, the people who I've lost from the project. I obviously knew that they had mm. suicidal thoughts and that they still struggled. But it's always it's always hard. I think it would be helpful if, you know, we taught this in schools. Like here are the risk factors. Here are the warning signs. Here's what you look for in, in behaviors. And that's all pretty simple stuff. And then the, the next thing is just How do you have that conversation in a way that is validating and helpful that might get someone out of a crisis so that you can then seek whatever kind of help it is that they think they need? You mentioned that things are shifting. Tell me the big shift you felt over the past 10 years since you started the project. So at first, I was kind of afraid to share the project with with the world. I thought that it would just be this quiet little website that maybe some people will come across and, and that would be really nice. And then I got involved with the American Association of Suicidology and I started sharing the project with uh, researchers and with clinicians. And I started to see them responding really well to it. As time has passed, I'm seeing that therapists are sharing the project with their clients as something a helpful resource. We're getting researchers involved with doing research on attempt survivors, but including attempt survivors in their research team. So They're driving the questions. The project is being taught uh, in graduate programs and undergraduate programs. Just people being able to say, I've been suicidal, I've struggled with this, I think is, is huge. And so many more people are coming out and saying that. You're seeing it 
with celebrities. I think Demi, Demi Lovato is a big one. Mm-hmm. So it's it's happening more and more where people are like, I've struggled yeah. with this and I'm still here. There's been so many high profile uh, suicides. And one of the things as a journalist, we were told not to report on it. If someone took their own life, uh, we were told we don't report on that. I remember those days. And and it's I've seen the shift. Now we do report on it. Um, but in a very sensitive, specific way, because it is triggering to some people and we don't want to start an epidemic. There's this fear like, oh, my God, we're going to, you know. But why do you think it's important that we do talk about it and that we do shine the light on this? Yeah, I've done a lot of work on those media guidelines myself. Like I, I helped write some of them. I think I think it's important to shine a light on it so that people know that they're not alone, so that they know that. Suicide isn't necessarily an abnormal response. It's just Mm -hmm. a response to really hard life events. I think if we're kind of neutralizing suicide Mm -hmm. in kind of, this is a tired metaphor, but cancer. In the 50s, we couldn't even say the C word. And then some women with with power got behind it and started talking about it. And now they do shows about it and there's merch everywhere. And... We know about cancer and there's tons of funding for cancer. So I kind of feel like if we could be doing the same thing with suicide, then there would be more funding for it, more public policy changing. Yeah. And we would see a shift. And my last question to you, I I love this quote that you had. It said uh, about your, your projects, this project is not about death. This project is about life. The project is about life. You know, we're starting off with people who wanted to die and who lived. And it's live through this is all about what happens afterwards, how they keep going. It's just about getting through it and waking up the next day. And every day that we wake up when we've struggled like that is a triumph. I want to say thank you to you, Desiree Sage, for coming on Flashpoint and check out her blog at livethroughthis.org. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next up, they're making space for first responders in crisis. They know that they need to talk to somebody, but they don't want to lose their job. A Bucks County program that's saving the lives of those who save others. Welcome back to a very special one-hour edition of Flashpoint, where we shine the light on mental health and suicide. I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community and the Bucks County Suicide Prevention Task Force has been all about saving lives. The group has helped implement crisis intervention training throughout the county and in recent years rolled out a special crisis hotline specifically for first responders. We traveled to the Northampton Police Headquarters to speak with Wendy Flanagan, co-chair of the Suicide Prevention Task Force there and Northampton Sergeant. Stephen Kingsdorf. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bucks County has been doing quite a bit um, to focus in on the issue of suicide prevention. Um, Wendy, could you just start us off and kind of lay out what has been going on here and, and why? 
Sure. Fox County Suicide Prevention Task Force, I would say about six years ago, has mm-hmm. decided to restructure and really take a look at what we were doing and all of our efforts throughout Bucks County. So we had a brainstorm session with the community and stakeholders to figure out how to kind of look at this and, and what our goals are moving forward. So we've since then have many different initiatives that have kind of come out of that. We have smaller groups that kind of focus on priority populations. So we have our uh, first responder subcommittee. We also have a young adult subcommittee. So it's focusing on the age group of like 18 to 25. We have one of our task force members that works for the Bucks County IU has a school age subcommittee. So all these subcommittees kind of focus on that and have come up with different initiatives. Another big initiative that we work on is training and education and really reducing the stigma and having people talk about it more so people feel comfortable with getting help. Did the county see like some type of an uptick that said, you know what, we need to do something about this for our officers and, and folks who are on the ground? Our CIT task force pretty much got up and running in 2008. And that class is a 40-hour class and there's one-hour modules mm-hmm. of so many different topics. And we would touch on suicide and suicide prevention for first responders. And sometime shortly after our program started, we were approached by a woman by the name of Nicole McClintock, Mm -hmm. and her husband was a Cherry Hill officer, and she moved back here to Pennsylvania, and she reached out to us and said, look, I'd like to come talk to the officers so that they realize there is help out there so that they don't have to do what my husband did. Through talking to her, we learned of a program in New Jersey called Cop to Cop, and basically that is the gold standard in suicide prevention for law enforcement and we looked at it and we said this is something that we really need to do here in Bucks County and we met with some legislators and in 2011 Sharon who is the other co-chair and I actually went to Harrisburg and met with representatives to say look what do we need to do to bring that to to Bucks County and it kind of just spun wheels for a while there because it's difficult. You got to look for funding. You got to look at a whole program. Mm-hmm. And it was probably within the last two years, there were a couple more first responder suicides that had taken place in the lower end portion of the county. And at that time, Representative Farry came to us and said, look, we need to get something rolling. He picked up that torch and really pushed it over the, the finish line for us to get rolling. Our program actually mirrors the cop-to-cop program in New Jersey. The big difference is in New Jersey, it is law and it's statewide and their funding comes from some of the money that's attached to traffic citations. Where here in Bucks County, we it's another grassroots operation. We're doing it just within the county. Now that some of the neighboring counties can still call our, our peer line, but we're primarily focused on Bucks County right now. So it's a peer support Mm -hmm. warm line uh, for first responders. So if a first responder calls this line, they're then connected to another first responder that will be able to talk to them and and can really understand through lived experience what it is that that they're dealing with. So it's a peer support warm line that's 24-7. It's managed by Lenape Valley Foundation, and the first responders that are handling the calls are all volunteers. 
so it's we've been able to do it now for the past two years and really support our first responders in a better way. Are people using the line, and do you see, a, a, I mean, hopefully you see a difference. They are, and the biggest thing is the first thing any of them say is they don't want their bosses to know. They're afraid they're going to be labeled and or lose their job. So being able to talk to somebody anonymously that's in our line of work, if you tried calling just a regular suicide prevention or a peer line or something like that, they don't understand what first responders go through day in and day out. So that was the whole thing behind this cop to cop and now our peer support. If you are fire, EMS, or police, when you call, they actually will link you to someone that is either fire, police, or EMS, depending on you know what organization you belong to. So they know that they can talk to somebody anonymously. They know that you walk in the shoes that they walk in, so they fully understand yeah. what you're talking about, and they're more inclined to talk to you and, and open up to you. And so how? tell me specifically, what do first responders go through that make the, this situation a little bit special? It could be one incident. It could be cumulative over several incidents. And my wife, she met me at the end of one of our training sessions and we were going to dinner and we weren't on the street but two seconds and there was a horrific car accident right there in, on 611 in Doylestown. And it was a serious accident and you just, you react. You get out, you do what you need to do because we, we were there when it first happened, even before any police or ambulance or anything got there. And when we got done, you wrap up, I get back in the car and my wife is sitting there crying. She didn't even get out of the car, just from what she saw from in the car. And she says, well, now what are we going to do? I'm thinking, we're going to dinner, and there's two people in the same car that it affected differently. And it's the same thing when we go to calls. When you first start this job and you're younger, certain calls aren't going to affect you the way as you get older. Now all of a sudden you get married. Well, now you go to a call that's involving maybe a married couple, and all of a sudden you're looking at it, you might be putting yourself in their position in your head. Well, now all of a sudden as you get older, now you have kids. Now you're a, a parent, and you're dealing with a call where it could be a, something fatal. Or, or I mean, we've delivered babies. I've done CPR. At one family, we delivered one of their kids, and a couple of years later we did CPR on their, their next infant. So that's in the same family. Officers are responding to many yeah. different crises, yeah. and it varies the different crises that they're responding to, but this is that's their job. That's every day, you know? I mean, so it's hard to go home and kind of decompress and talk about your day when no one really quite understands exactly yeah. what your day deal is like. So over time, that could impact your relationship, It could, whether it's with a spouse or your children or other family members or friends. It's just having that person that gets it, that understands understands mm-hmm. what what that is like and how that may be impacting the different areas in in their life or and it's just not law enforcement our, our peer support ambulance fire they go to some of the same calls the horrific accidents and stuff that we go to yeah you know our 40-hour training that we offer twice a year we've had probation officers attend the training we've mm-hmm. had correction officers attend the training EMS. We've had different people throughout Bucks County that are involved in kind of a first responder role attend the training. But what's also come out of that training is the development of other trainings specific to different first responders. So CIT has not only trained, what, over 500 law enforcers throughout Bucks County, but it's also kind of morphed into these other trainings for other first responders as well. Steve, when you go to a scene, I mean, what do you guys do? So someone 
get to you get a 911 call or you show up you see somebody and you realize that they're in a mental health crisis possibly suicidal what part of your CIT training sort of kicks in and says this is what we need to do to help this person it used to be when we would go through the academy when you went to a call you you arrive your presence is there you pretty much start a barking out orders as far as what you wanted them to do to comply with your requests. Where we're learning now that somebody in crisis has trouble focusing in on what's being said. So part of the trainings, and we do role plays and scenarios, is you slow things down because they're not processing it as fast as the average person may. Mm. So you give them one set of instructions, let them process it then go on to what you want them to do next. And you assure them that you're there to help them. Every officer approaches it different. We give you the framework on on how things should be done, but it depends on what works for you because what might work for you might not work for the next guy. Yeah, because that literally is a difference between life and death. By slowing it down, they live through that moment. And unfortunately, this is another tool on our tool belt. Yeah. This is not going to work each and every time. We hope that it does, but in reality, it's not always going to work, but it's another tool to help you to get to a, a safe conclusion. Yeah. And I think, too, that, you know, the message that we convey also, I mean, it is, it's important to slow it down. It's important to listen. I mean, when someone feels that they're being heard, I think it goes a long way. But officer safety is always paramount. You yeah. know, when you have a situation like that that was handled wonderfully, it there's also an, a, a firearm in, in hand. So, you know, you have to be mindful of that. And that is, you know, a, a message that we convey is that the safety of, of law enforcement is paramount. And these are tools in your toolbox to help you, you know, to handle a, a crisis situation while keeping the community and yourself safe and so what do you want the general public to know and other you know that that this suicide prevention that this issue it seems like it's important it's very important and we want people to know that to ask for help to seek help that there is help out there and that we are training and we are talking about it more and people are responding better to crisis whether it's first responders at community at large but we just want the stigma that's attached to kind of mental health and suicide to not be there anymore so people will feel more comfortable to get the help they need. Definitely get help. So I want to say thank you so much to Wendy Flanagan and thank you to Sergeant Steve Kingsdorf for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this important issue. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening, y'all, to this very special edition of the Flashpoint podcast. It's called I'm Listening. It's all part of Intercom's platform to raise awareness about suicide prevention. Intercom has resources available year-round at imlistening.org. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. This entire one-hour show, of course, is always available online at kywnewsradio.com slash flashpoint. And if you downloaded us through one of the many podcast apps available, please subscribe to the podcast. We talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. And next week, a much lighter show, we'll be talking about cuffing season, where you find one of those October to May romances. So a much lighter show. In the meantime, let's save a life. Let's create spaces of love and support and openness. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week. Thank you for listening.
This edition of Flashpoint I'm Listening is executive produced by KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg and a KYW associate producer, Charlotte Reese.